Hi, I'm James Gagliardi, along with Natalie Wires and Jason Nyes. Between us, we have over 40 years of experience working in e-commerce technologies. But this isn't about us. This is Commerce Connect, a podcast about people who are creating some of the best e-commerce experiences of our times. Listen on to hear from e-commerce visionaries as they look back on where they started, lessons they've learned that have gotten them where they are today, and what they believe is the future of online shopping. On this week's episode, James and I talked to Elena Verna, Senior Vice President of Product and Growth at anti-malware software company, Malwarebyte. Listen in as Elena talks about how her background in data analysis and her tenacity to break into the tech world led her to a job working in growth for SurveyMonkey, along with her initial doubts about the role. I remember Dave Goldberg came to me and he said, we're going to start a growth team. And my reaction was, this is a Silicon Valley hype. Why would anybody, a single person, be responsible for growth of the company? Isn't this the company's entire objective to grow? She quickly changed her mind to understand the importance of that role at a high growth company. Since that time, Elena has dedicated her career to using data and analysis to influence business strategy from determining the right monetization approach to deciding what products to build, all with a keen eye on creating a seamless customer experience. We have the hypotheses, we do the research, but our final result ultimately has not been tested on actual customers, and only until they get that in their hands that they can tell you if it works or it doesn't for them. Um, So let's just jump right in and start sort of from the beginning. Why don't you tell us, you know, where you went to school, what your kind of first jobs were right out of college, and walk us what led you to to what you're doing today. Sure. Uh, I went to school in UC Berkeley, go Bears. Uh, I majored in uh, statistics um, as a bachelor degree, which was probably to this date is one of the hardest things that I've done in my life, but I did it. So I started first at Safeway. I actually graduated in um, pretty downturn time of the economy in 2008. So there was not a lot of jobs. I was very fortunate to be able to get into the marketing team at Safeway. And we worked on the program uh, that's called Just For You which is a fairly large uh, marketing initiative now for Safeway, but I was very fortunate to be one of the first analysts to write the initial personalization scripts um, to drive increased um, basket penetration for the customers. Just around a year and a half after um, I started at Safeway, I persuaded, I weaseled my way in into SurveyMonkey. I was pursuing them for a really long time. I really wanted them to hire me. I really wanted to work with the team and the leadership team that was there. We had Dave Goldberg, we had uh, Selena Tabakawala, Timali. I knew those of the people that I wanted to learn from. So I started as a data analyst um, at SurveyMonkey back in 2009, and um, I stayed there for almost eight years. This was an amazing journey for me. I grew the analytics team there. SurveyMonkey is an extremely data-driven decision-making company, so that's something that um, I was able to be a part of. And then I started jumping around across different functions, uh, such as product marketing, product management, performance marketing, and I ended up on this uh, concept uh, of growth. Uh, and growth, uh, when we started it, which was just probably around six years ago or so, um, I remember Dave Goldberg came to me and he said, we're going to start a growth team. And my reaction was, this is a Silicon Valley hype. Why would anybody, 
a single person be responsible for growth of the company? Isn't this the company's entire objective to grow? Uh, now, six years later, I'm a firm believer that there has to be an evangelizing group that is growing the business. And biggest portion of that group is to not only drive uh, metrics for the company with acquisition and engagement, uh, such as monthly active users or a number of signups that you get, but most importantly, monetization. So that's where the conversion rate is coming from. That's where the retention is coming from. One of our first focuses and everything that I've always looked in the data for is what are the opportunities for business to to accelerate, whether it comes from um, getting new customers to converting more customers to retaining more customers. So monetization has always been uh, my my focus in my career as to how to provide value back to the business and tie that monetization to the value provided by the product. And if those are very closely aligned, then win-win for everybody. Here at Malwarebytes, I run product and growth teams uh, for consumer business. So it's very all self-serve, it's all subscription-based. Uh, it's providing cybersecurity offering to customers uh, on their Windows, Mac, iOS, or Android devices. But it's all about that subscription. It's all about how do you, it's a freemium acquisition, low um uh, we, we scan and remediate your device for free, and then how do we actually show you the value of our premium, and how do we convert you, and then how do we retain you uh, by continuously showing you engagement. So that monetary piece, it has to be very seamless, it has to be very um, friction, frictionless, and it almost has to be a complement to our product as opposed to um, being uh, its own standalone track. So how does the product and growth side of the equation come together? What's the intersection point there that said, let's bring these two functions together under one, one leader, one function, one umbrella? Yeah, great question. So I started here as just leading growth team, which was really um, optimizing self-serve funnels on existing products that already existed. A lot of it had to do with pricing, checkout, um, uh, all of the emails that you get. How, how, do you, how, how do we show the value to you? How do, we, um, how do we get you to convert? How do we get you to retain? The product really came as a piece of it because it's a, it's an, it's a necessary piece. Uh, growth and product can exist separately for... Uh, quite some time and be successful where product can focus on feature development and growth team can focus on landing those features successfully to drive the outcome for the company. Ultimately, it does help to bring those together so that way you're driving to the outcome-based product where it's not just delivery of functionality, it's how do you deliver it in a way that really creates an amazing experience for customers where they can just go right through and not even think about it as being a barrier. I know on your LinkedIn profile, you, you have a quote regarding A-B testing. Can you describe uh, what your philosophy is around that? Because it's very prominent on your LinkedIn profile. Yeah, so the quote on my LinkedIn profile says, uh, not A-B testing is testing on 100% of, um, of your customers just without any quantifiable learnings. Uh, that quote is very near and dear in my heart. It comes from my data roots. Uh, it comes from me wanting to learn from everything that we do. Uh, whether we make the right prediction on the outcome, whether we make the wrong prediction on the outcome, but uh, to me, it's all about how do we evolve and how do we learn what we've done and what our assumptions were. And for that, I love A-B testing uh, methodology just because you can roll out a feature and you can just see if your baseline moves, or you can roll out a feature as a test and see if it actually performs better in certain metrics and control and then optimize the landing of that feature. So for me, it's near and dear to be able to deliver best customer experience. And most of the time, we don't know what it's like, um, what it is, 
when we go through the life cycle of the product development. We have the hypotheses, we do the research, but our final result ultimately has not been tested on actual customers. And only until they get that in their hands that they can tell you if it works or it doesn't for them. So for me, the process of that iteration, A-B testing, uh, forces you to actually identify what you're actually trying to improve or what you're trying to move, who you're trying to engage, and validate that hypothesis. So you're moving forward by understanding what happened in the past as opposed to just blindly going forward without ever looking back. And then how do you balance your, your, your qualitative metrics with your quantitative metrics? You mentioned a couple of times creating a, a great customer experience. But those things might not necessarily be aligned. What converts well may not lead to a great customer experience. How, how does Malwarebytes, or how do you think about the qualitative versus quantitative I, I challenge the misalignment in those. I think they have to align for a sustainable, scalable, and predictable growth for both business. For business, so if they're misaligned, that might be a good short-term outcome for the business, but it's not going to be a long-term sustainable outcome. And that's where that's where the that's where virality is unlocked. That's when people actually start recommending the product. That's when they see the value. That's when they retain with your product so you don't have the leaky bucket situation. So a lot of it has been, been going through a lot of reformation for me in the field, um, especially in tech in the last couple of years where people used to bill per user. Now they bill per active user. Again, value creation as opposed to just billing for something that you're not going to use. You, um, you, do, you do multiple plans so you don't have just buy everything, you specialize it based on the use case of the customer that is actually purchasing. So you're not selling them that they don't need. I'll deliver on value and underperform, uh, so to speak, on price. So the value versus price balance is very out of whack, very much in the value perception. Then you're just going to retain customers and then you don't need to uh, work as hard to acquire them. And what's the best outcome that you can possibly wish for? So, so do you have additional metrics then that you're measuring in addition to capturing those? How do you then measure lifetime value and the perception? Do you do net promoter scores, or is it just purely based off how long they're, they're paying customers? So lifetime value is a pretty standard metric. I, I wouldn't reinvent it. It's something that is very um, good to compare between different businesses in the same industry or even different industries. So to me, that's a fairly standard calculation that I, that I don't really mess with. I do try to understand what actually drives conversion what features, what triggers, what actions that drive conversion, and do we monetize on those? Because if there is a feature that we believe um, is, is supposed to be monetizable, and then we, we make customer pay for it, and then they never use it, then that's a problem. So that's something that we need to fix. So to me, it's more of a product-led growth concept that has to come in, where you have to use the product, you have to use what you're paying for in order for it to be a sustainable business. So, and those are the KPIs that I watch for very, very carefully. So you talked a bit about how much monetization plays into all of the businesses that you've worked for. Can you talk a bit about how you've seen the evolution of monetization over your career and where you think that that's going in the future in order to build these seamless, personalized experiences that your customers are wanting? So monetization, um, I feel 10 years ago, it was 
unnecessary evil on top of the technology had, had to be overlaid. It was something that is a functionality that was there, uh, but it was the technology that, that everybody was excited about. And now monetization finally became a part of the technology, which is very exciting because it becomes part of the uh, seamless experience that we deliver to customers. But it also introduces a lot of barriers and a lot of um, complexity in terms of how do you make it seamless. There's very few companies that have the scale and infrastructure to be able to set up monetization completely on their own, to have their own billing system that is built in-house, to have uh, their own relationships with PSPs, to be on top of the payments landscape. That's expensive to do. That's a lot of talent. So not a lot of companies can afford to do it. So on the other spectrum, you can go into full e-commerce um, workshop where everything is handled for you. But then the, the customer is transacting with two companies. They buy your product with one company, with you, and then they transact with another company. And that creates a break of the experience and trust sometimes because they ask, why am I buying with somebody else? I want to buy for you. I'm buying your product. You have to be the one that, that is making the purchase that is that is powering the purchase for me so there's big big push of making monetization so seamless so embedded as part of the product so custom to what the product needs and what the subscription needs are a lot of value where growth came in and said monetization is not its own uh, silo that is just spinning and processing payments and processing subscriptions, it actually it has improves conversion rate, it improves retention when it's more tightly integrated with the product, and it delivers much better customer experience that also improve conversion rates and, um, and engagement and, ret and retention rates for the customers. Now you have a, a freemium model and you mentioned having some products, uh, some additional add-ons. So you get them go from a, a freemium product to a, a subscription product and then it sounds like you have some add-on products as well. Do you, do you spend a lot of time A-B testing your monetization uh, techniques, the, the pricing, the price points, the frequency of, of payments, one-time versus subscriptions? So, uh, yes, absolutely. So the tie even between the pricing page and checkout, because a lot of times in e-commerce world, uh, checkout is hosted by somebody else, and then the pricing page potentially is hosted by you or somebody else as well. But even the pricing page and what you show on pricing page and what you charge on that pricing page and how you pass that price, the look and feel of it, how, it's, um, how it all flows together, makes a huge difference. You can make the pricing page changes, and we've done it um, both at Malwarebytes and SurveyMonkey. It's, it's the way you present the value value that customers should be paying for and how that experience translates to the checkout and the order confirmation of where they actually went through all of the barriers to actually purchase is extremely important and you can lift conversion rate 10-15% easy by just changing changes in that flow. And yes, maybe when you have, uh, when you're just in the product market fit stage, that's not a big opportunity for any company because they have bigger fish to fry with new feature development and really landing the product. But in a scale stage of the business, 10% conversion rate improvements on the pricing page can mean millions of dollars. So it becomes um, very important to really handhold that journey and to customize it. Even by use case, pricing page has to, can be customized based on the use case of the customer to not 
overwhelm them with features, but really show them what's relevant for them. So they pay for what they need. And on the checkout page, even standardizing checkout page, the CTAs have to be above the fold, the fewer fields as possible, break it up. So in, in multiple steps as opposed to doing one huge, huge form. I mean, depends on the business, depends on the model, but those things make big, big difference. How do you contemplate uh, your buyer personas and your customer uh, experiences globally? Everybody wants to be global because if you look at um, if you look at where people are, you obviously want to be where most people are, and it's not it's not here domestically in 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 the United States. But it's a big trap to fall after because, you, like you said, the experience is widely different across different geos. So it's not one shoe fits all. So although it's extremely lucrative uh, to go after global markets, I always believed into very, very tight focus on which markets you actually want to succeed in. Some of them can plug and play in Europe. You don't need to necessarily customize by country. Europe as a whole can be customized uh, together. Oh, different than US though, uh, but uh, different, for example, than South America. But to me, the tight focus on picking the markets where you really want to be good at and uh, really localizing for them and transcribing for them so it's not just translating, it's localization. It's, it's uh, you taking the behavioral aspect of the culture, of the people, of the market, of what they see the value in your product. So there's a lot more qualitative research that has to be done in order to uh, personalize that experience. I can tell your, your start in personalization has been a theme that you've carried kind of throughout your career. So that's well, it's the whole movement of direct to consumer because you want to talk to a customer like there it's a personal connection that is happening that it's not a business talking to a customer. So it's very important to create that connection with your customers in order to have great relationship. The best products have relationships. They don't just provide services and they, that you can walk away from because if you have a relationship, you see the value and you see the personality of the company. And that's important because then that differentiates you and that you're not just becoming a storefront. You're becoming something that is a lot more deeply embedded with the user that they really cherish and that they will evangelize for you. So we've talked about your past and we've talked about what you're currently working on. Where Where is commerce headed? What do you think commerce is going to become in the next two, three, five years? I think everybody's moving to e-commerce now. Everybody wants to sell online. It's efficient, you can develop more tight relationship with customers, you know who they are because you sell them online, you can uh, reach to them again, you don't have to wait for them to come in through the store, uh, through the store doors, you can generate intent, which is incredible. Uh, you can follow up with them um, at any time. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing of relationships, again, between customers and companies. But at the same time, it puts a lot of pressure on e-commerce to be extremely agile to each business. So it's no longer a module that you just sell to, to businesses. It's a platform that they can plug and play, that they can customize, because then businesses need to customize it to their use case, to their business model. Is it freemium or is it trial? Is a credit card required up front of the trial? Is it towards the end of the trial? Is the subscription length uh, uh, 12 months or is it one month? Is it three months? Is it annual payments? Is it what's the retention looking like? How many retry attempts do you do 
doing a payment failure? What's the emails that are going out? I want them going out of my system, not your system. I want the custom template. I want everything to look like it's coming from me. Uh, from my business, but I want to utilize your scale and uh, your platform to get me the goodness of be able to transact with people. So I don't have to be PCI compliant. I don't have to know all of the rules and regulations because the field is, is very complex, but I also demand those features of personalization as your customer. So to me, the, it's moving very heavily into integrations, into deep integrations within the uh, company where it becomes one of their products in a way that is still powered by e-commerce and a lot of times until the company potentially is ready to actually bring everything in-house. But that also requires quite a bit of scale. And at SurveyMonkey, for example, I went through the process where they brought everything in-house. So they went from a model where they used um, somewhat of an e-commerce provider and then they just built a system in-house. And that was a very interesting learning because we, the company had to go through PCI compliance. It's, it's the engineering team, it's the product management roadmaps, building all of the features. And it did unlock incredible opportunity in terms of be able to be truly custom. Billing system was truly custom to our business. And any feature we wanted, we could get it. We didn't have to get on anybody's roadmap. We didn't have to get anybody's um, approval. Does it, does it work? Does it not work? We were in control of our destiny and that was powerful. At Malwarebytes, we're, we're transitioning from the model of having a full e-commerce shop to be more hands-on. So we're taking all of the services in-house, all of the support services in-house. We're taking all of the front-end pieces in-house as well. So all of the checkout order confirmation pages because we want that experience to be on Malwarebytes not anybody else. So we don't feel like customers are switching companies as they're going through the purchase experience. And that has been a very interesting journey as well. And if we have seen uh, extreme big improvements of just customer satisfaction that they don't feel like they're confused anymore, that they're switching to another provider to do the purchase because they trust us. They don't trust anybody else at the time that they're opening up the wallet. So we want to keep it as close to them as possible. So to me, those pieces are necessities to be able to provide very robust APIs and platforms for us to be able to customize it. And customization is only going to get more vicious as it continues going. Not only from what type of fields I want to display, what type of information I want to capture on the checkout page, how all of that data flows back into my system, how can I report on it in real time, because I cannot wait a day to see how my numbers are doing all of the all of the cleanliness and numbers all of the ability of um, of uh, let's say refer a friend or ability to add a coupon code or ability to add a license or add, a, add, add another user at the order confirmation page and I want emails to be completely custom triggered I want to be able to do all of it myself because I want to create that incredible awesome experience for my customers so that flexibility is becoming more and more important um, as the demands for e-commerce providers and that's where I really think the, the world is going as I'm trying to provide an incredible experience for my customers, I expect the same out of every single service that I'm really getting engaged with on internal basis as well and customization level for me to deliver on that promise to our users. How do you make the decisions on what you're going to pull in and then how do you contemplate the efficiencies that are required, right? I assume as you pull these things in, your team might grow. How does that all play? It's all about right place, right time with right people at the end of the day. Uh, we, we make assumptions, we make hypotheses of what we believe we will achieve. Um, so we just went through the process of taking billing support in-house. Uh, so we do all of the support ourselves um, now at Malwarebytes. And 
that was um, that is something that we just wanted to provide as a great customer service. We want to be able to understand why people wanting to cancel with us if they do have billing issues. We wanted to be a lot closer to the root of the problem, and that was worth it to us because that was gonna that's gonna deliver to us invaluable learnings for us to improve. So that's a no-brainer as long as you can actually absorb some of it in terms of operations, because that, that does add quite a bit of overhead. So we do make assumptions against it in terms of how much it's gonna cost us. Are we eating that cost? Because that's just the right thing to do for us right now for our customers, or are we actually gonna get some value out of it because we'll be able to retain customers better? Maybe, hopefully, we'll see. But um, on the other pieces, to us, it really goes into more of are we ready to tackle that part of the journey of the customer. We look at the data, we identify where we believe are the biggest opportunities are. So for example, on the pricing page, pricing page on a subscription business, again, freemium conversion rate, usually you convert about 15% of people on your pricing page and then the checkout page should convert around 50 period. If you are within those ranges, maybe you can focus on some other parts of the funnel. Maybe your onboarding is not that great. Maybe your acquisition um, can, can accelerate. But if those rates are very low, I will, I will throw resources and I will go fix it because especially if we forecast, if we get it to the industry averages, how will that go? A lot of it is also on retention, for example, on retention on my first term annual subscription without any monthly plan, so first term renewal, I want to retain at least 80% of the subscribers, period, for self-serve business, whether it's B2C or B2C2B. So all self-serve, whether it's for businesses or consumers. Now, 80% retention is excellent. If I'm in 60s, I have huge room to improvement, and if I have a couple of years of subscription layers that are already building up, of course I'll go after it, because it's a huge upside that I will that, that will be able to gain to the business. If I'm already closer to high 70s, maybe that's not the area that I'll focus, but I try to understand where are the biggest opportunities, and at some point, the the longer you neglect the portion of the funnel, you always have to come to it and improve it. Because by just law of large numbers, things are gonna decline. Then you cannot focus on everything at the same time. We all have very limited resources and very tight priorities, but we put um, our best foot forward in terms of where we believe we can um, do the most and improve the most. So you, you talk a lot about customer retention and the things that you, you guys are doing to make sure that you're providing the value so that customers want to continue to get your service. How are you thinking about some of the involuntary or passive churn yeah. and what are you doing to make sure that you're bring, you know, continuing to deal with that side of the churn as well? Yeah, involuntary churn... Um, is the type of churn that you just want to have almost none of. If somebody says that they don't want to be with you anymore, fine. You can try to uh, regain them back. If somebody didn't even know that they churned from you, that's that's on you, and that's that's on you to be able to uh, to really. Um, to really figure out how to how to bring them back. Now, a lot of involuntary churn, um, there's very different tactics compared to voluntary churn. So be able to identify and having that data clarity is extremely important. And that's really step number one. If you look at that, and even if people do churn from payment failure, which is in, um, involuntary churn is usually, I didn't mean to churn, it's just my credit card has failed. And, we, all of our credit cards get reissued all the time and it's pretty common. It's not, it has nothing to do with the customer. It's, um, it really has to do with our, uh, our payment landscape that is happening right now. And it's all about communication. 
But communication is all about being at the right place and be able to catch a customer, to tell them what's happening. Because if you're just sending it over to an email that they that you have never talked to or is bouncing, then you'll never even be able to reach it. So you have to have the ability to message in product if they're logging in in product. So you have to have flexibility of knowing that there is a payment failure has occurred and not be able to hook in into and understand that and deliver a custom message with the one-click payment update functionality that just brings it up. Whatever it is, at the end of the day, it's it's all about trying to disrupt customers as least, least as possible by trying to regain some of it automatically. And you can, there's quite a bit of recovery that you can do on automated basis and communication to people. And then the rest of them, how do you integrate that process to be seamless for customers to truly update the payment information where it's it's, it's just a click of a button and then entering a couple of numbers. It's not this convoluted process. Go here, log in here, now click here, now open this up. Now we need to 10 different fields that we need you to fill out. So again, seamless, barrier-free experience and that communication embedded everywhere. How do you handle the balance of you know, uh, showing the value of what your technology is providing to the end customer when for a lot of what it's doing, it's happening in the background, mm -hmm. right? It's, we're just, we're protecting you mm -hmm. from this so you don't have to think about it. But yet we want to be able to somehow show you the value that we're doing something for you yep. so that you'll continue to pay for the technology or upgrade to the paid version whatever happens to be. How do you balance that? Malwarebytes is in a very unique position. In most of the companies to drive engagement, you need customer to go and do something with your product. We're in the very unique space that you just need to go online. That's all we need you to do and we will be able to show value to you because you will hit that website that is malicious. We will block that ad that potentially had an exploit in it. So to us, we, we just need you to be online, but when you're online, we don't want to take you out of that workflow. So it's extremely important to be as, um, as soft as possible, but as educational as possible at the same time, because we do want to show it to you, but we really don't want to disrupt you because you in some workflow, you're doing something, you might be working, you might be playing, which, whatever it is. So for us, we do, we have worked a lot on um, the pages that actually block the websites to make sure that we provide a lot of information. The customer understands that that's what the event that happened. And the second one is email. We send summaries to say, this is what we've done for you. So even if you didn't notice it at the time, even if notification from our product popped up in your notification center and you still, you, you were over, you didn't even notice, which is beautiful for us. That means your just experience was flawless and we just blocked everything and you were just completely not interrupted, which is perfect for what we want to do. Sounds like you're doing some really amazing things regarding, you know, again, creating a very rich customer experience beyond Malwarebytes and the work you're doing. Who do you think is doing uh, an amazing job from a customer experience standpoint? There's, yeah, there's, there's a huge shift in um, consumer-like interfaces with really enterprise-grade technology behind it and features powering it. Because then you make it intuitive for the customer, but at the same time, the platform that is actually powering it is very, is, is very powerful. I love what Slack is doing. I think they've disrupted the market of communication in, in products. It's really fantastic. They've it's a consumer product inside enterprises, which I, I applaud them for be able to deliver that. Um, I love company, uh, for example, Bonusly, that does peer-to-peer -peer recognition um, between the uh, between the 
employees because again it creates more productive work environment where we all feel um, a lot better about um, what we do who can see us uh, how our work actually applies to business how it impacts other people uh, plus I mean there's a lot of names there's MailChimp there's Dropbox all of those companies have done incredible job of connecting value to actual monetization and delivering on all fronts uh, and creating very powerful um, businesses with millions and millions of users to actually that, that use them and that need them. It's not an, it's not a choice. It's part of their life. It's part of their workflow at work, which is really incredible. And now taking the flip side, where do where do companies fall down or what mistakes do you see made in how people approach customer experience and, and commerce and the company always usually starts by having an idea of something that you're doing differently and it's only always very heavily pivots around product and engineering technology that you deliver, the solution that you deliver to the customer. And that's when you hit that product market fit if you actually land it with the customer. The next stage is very difficult. Then you need to scale it because then you're not talking to a hundred customers, you're talking to hundreds of thousands of customers. And the stakes become very, very different at that point. And I do see a lot of companies struggling to make that scaling stage as they go towards the second horizon, as they go towards their next product evolution. And how do you scale your business and how do you become successful where you don't have the blockers in your own internal roadmap that prevent you from succeeding, that you're actually enabling that growth and you're enabling that scale and you're able to handle that scale and you're able to actually optimize that experience, not just for hundreds, but for hundreds of thousands and really become a platform, not a tool, not a feature. What's one thing that you wish you would have known when you were starting out? The one thing is to always try to look ahead. Don't, don't get bogged down in day-to-day -day details. It's so hard to see what is happening through the woods of what's happening now, of the problems that are in front of you now, and to really focus on where you should be and what incredible experience should be and what incredible product should look like and how it should operate and what it should deliver to customers and how it should interact with the customer. So not get too much caught up in limitations that we have currently, but really shoot for what awesome looks like and start from that from the beginning. And um, we, we just switched to OKR framework um, here at Malwarebytes. And it, I love this phrase of what does awesome looks like? Because that really shifts the way you brainstorm and how you solve, because you don't solve for what is possible, you solve for what is awesome, and you land way above everything else that you possibly uh, can uh, deliver. And I just wish I always asked myself a question of what does awesome look like, not what I can deliver fast or what I can deliver in the most efficient way, but what does awesome look like? We didn't get from you sort of a business overview of who Malwarebytes is, okay. what it is, uh, how it got started, why, why it exists today. So I joined Malwarebytes uh, two years ago and mission of Malwarebytes is what really attracted me to this company. Uh, our CEO, Marcin, inadvertently started a company when he was 14 years old and he pirated a game and he got infected uh, with his parents' computer with a virus, uh, with malware actually. 
Now, he was running a traditional antivirus on the computer, and it still didn't save him, and the computer was, uh, was pretty fried. So he went on forums, and he found people that were willing to help him, and they spent hours helping him take that malware off his computer. To which he had a question of, well, why isn't there a more automated way to do this? And why is traditional antivirus not, not capturing this and not protecting me from this? So he partnered with some of those people from forums um, and he created the first uh, Malwarebytes application, which was, um, which was just a scanner and remediation. It wasn't uh, a full-time protection. It was just the remediation of um, anything that potentially was infected on your computer under malware umbrella. Viruses are really a part of the malware overall umbrella and the only smaller portion, even though everybody thinks that viruses is what we should be afraid of. It's actually malware is a lot bigger and broader category that is a lot more impactful to the health of your system. But then he went to high school and then he went to college. And then as he came out of college, he started the company and he really put in all of his time into it. And that was uh, just around uh, eight years ago or so. So the business has really been around uh, the core problem that exists in the space that nobody was solving. Malwarebytes came up as one of the best um, scanner and remediations um, for your Windows system at the beginning to really remove all of the exploits, all of the malicious traits, all of the unwanted programs that potentially was, were uninstalled um, without even your knowledge, to all of the trackers. Um, and then they evolve into covering more systems and they evolved into actually protecting your system from getting infected. So not just remediation, but protection. And protection is the paid offering and remediation is always free. We're like a doctor. If you're sick, we're gonna come in and we help you get better. And we're not gonna charge you for it. And that's part of the core values of Malwarebytes. We will help people and we will never charge them for it. But to protect you going forward, like an insurance, that's what you pay for a premium offering for. But the mission of the company is so strong because we imagine the world without malware. Because every single, if every single computer runs Malwarebytes, hackers will have no incentives to go after the machines anymore. So the malware will stop as a, as a result. So we hope to achieve a maximum, um, maximum number of users, maximum number of devices covered with malware bytes because that will bring the end to malware. And that's a beautiful thing. We basically want to take ourselves out of the business. Who would you like to see as a guest on this podcast? I do think uh, there is a lot of uh, a lot of interesting uh, things happening in terms of uniting self-serve billing uh, with sales assisted billing and the credit card making a much bigger impact in the sales assisted business models as well. And how do you grow on top of self-serve into sales assisted business? So to me, that topic is very fascinating as a lot more businesses go down into self-serve or they start a self-serve and then expand in sales assisted world. And how do you create um, that um, that seamless transition as you switch internal business models uh, from the company. I think it's fascinating and there's plenty of companies that actually uh, do uh, do a lot of that. I mean, Dropbox, for example, is, is one of them. But at the same time, more interesting monetization models where it's not just for users, but for example, for active users, like again, like I said, Slack. It's a very interesting monetization model in terms of how they charge, to how the users adjust between the billing periods. How do you prepay for some of the offerings? So to me, those, are, uh, those would be a very interesting um, stories to hear in terms of how they adapt subscription to fit into their more unique business model approaches.